feast on this one. Conceptuality is something other than itself. There's been a change in the image of thought. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's what it is. The internal structure of becoming. As soon as an utterance slips from the mouth, it's divorced from the subject. Okay, as a first move, you're saying something like difference, or in this case, iteration, is the origin. Yeah. Right? But as origin, that thing doesn't function like an origin anymore. So that would be the second, the second step right. would be the second thing. And, and you know, like, I, I don't understand. I mean, honestly, to me, when I re- reread the Searle response, I don't understand. This is, strikes me as actually a fairly straightforward yeah. point. Right, yeah. the the idea of the basic characteristic of writing is iterability, right? It's yeah. capacity to go from one place to the next. Now, where Derrida goes with that is one of the consequences is that that means that the mark is never self-identical. Yeah. That I can see people being like, wait, hold on a second. Like, I don't necessarily get that consequence, right? Like, but I don't understand why Searle has such difficulty understanding. Yeah the notion of iterability, right? Like that anything, the basic characteristic and, and that it's, it's really clear in his response. Like he just doesn't, he just doesn't seem to get that. He doesn't seem to get that, that like, he, you know, cause he makes the argument. He's like, look, there are plenty of situations in which people write something to one another. Like the, he gives the example of a grocery store note. Like you write a grocery store list and Derrida's, you know, is like, but that's a perfect example uh, of the nonsense like of course people can be present the other can be present when you're writing but for writing to work it has to be possible for them not to be and so that's the exact that's the exact like critique that nate was just describing with his that with that third reviewer like to say like look like there is a structural like structurally you know like we are all set up to participate in x now that doesn't mean that everyone is equally activating x at all times or certainly not intending to but that is a factor that is constantly there as as a you know either as a more or less latent possibility but always activated to some degree or another it's the same thing here it's just like you don't have to be absent from your writing you just have to be able to be that's right, right. Absent from the well writing. and the fact that absence is constitutive in Derrida's case I mean it is a little bit like that is kind of a scary concept if you're invested in a metaphysics of presence or of self-presence right I mean it's like if we're all activated by some sort of weird abyss or absence of self um, at all times that makes everything ephemeral right I mean self-identity cultural not identity fem- not a fem- because that's where like I don't I don't follow on that one, like, because for me, it's not ephemeral, it's just iterative, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it, so that's, that's where it's important is that, like, well, iteration isn't absence, you know? Absence yeah. actually would be just sort of reassuring, right? It would be, well, it happens to not be there, right? Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it actually is, to me, it's, you know, like, what makes these marks work this way is context, which, yeah. by the way, is also made up of marks. Right. Right, like iter- iterated marks. That just strikes me as like, okay, here's what convention is. When we say like, here's a conventional way that we are to understand one another, to have this conversation. We yeah. are relying on a whole series of conventions, but the conventions don't come from God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think you're coming they come at from it repetition. from an already pretty sophisticated understanding of the conceptual terrain. Like for someone like Searle or somebody just not, you know, knowledgeable of, of deconstruction, like... 
there there's no firmness of the foundation at least apparently right to the yeah, to this yeah. concept of iterability right like yeah. yes iterability uh you know instantiates convention which instantiates self or whatever but like well, that's still pretty precarious as opposed to like the god foundation or like but like self not a god guy right no. like i mean and most of those folks are not like they're not they don't believe in the transcendent dropping down they just don't follow, it's the nietzschean critique of the madman they just don't follow out the consequences right they're right. they're not pursuing well, even Austin. that even Austin, well, they don't. Can. They, they can't accept yeah. the, the the madness to take a hold of them. I mean, like it, you read all of that philosophy of, of language stuff, um, like everything from like, well, not like earlier Wittgenstein, you know, all the way up through yeah. Cyril, and it's like, look, we're going to approach this thing, but we have to have some kind of baseline to approach it from, and that thing is going to be some kind of like ordinary, like ordinary language, and then we're going right. to use ordinary language to examine ordinary language, but you, it's it's very very difficult to like keep an eye on the assumptions that you're operating with, and like to me, this is I've I've, I've never been. Um, it's never been so clear to me as to how powerful the epigraph is in this. You know, still confining yeah. ourselves for simplicities to the spoken utterance, right? I mean, like that is just it, it. Just is profoundly redundant in in the way that it tries to assert the, the obviousness of a primacy of speech overriding. Yeah. Um, for a simplicity over complexity, for the capacity of thinking sort of like the safe, normal area that we can confine ourselves to and then go to the extraneous material without realizing that, like, you know, the ordinary is not safe. The ordinary is not stable. The no, none of this kind of stuff. There's no there's no safe starting point to be able to build out the cogito. Yeah, Yeah. and, and for me in the lecture, I felt like the most interesting part for me in thinking through it was exactly that point where I said, like, look, here's Searle's defense of Austin. He's saying Austin's not getting rid of jokes and plays and lies. He's just saying in a fairly obvious way that if you're going to understand speaking, you don't want to start with those. And my reaction to that is, yeah, that makes sense, right? That seems reasonable. It's like there is that way in which that claim is like, yeah, if you're going to understand speaking, you don't start with actors on a stage. You don't start with people making jokes or telling lies, right? I get that. And what Derrida is saying is the fact that it sort of seems reasonable to you, that's the problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that's exactly like because it does. It does seem reasonable to me. It seems like, OK, it's methodologically like it would never cross my mind for a moment to say that's a ridiculous uh, uh, presupposition until I read Derrida and go, wait, hold on. You're saying implicitly, you're saying that jokes and lies are less ordinary than direct, you know, honest locution. It's like, that just seems ridiculous, right? Like they're, they're all equally ordinary. So starting at one place, right. you know, is going to skew the way that you the way you treat those things. But most importantly, it points out to me, like that was the interesting part for me on terms of the, the like the turn to affect, right? Is that mm-hmm. don't trust your gut. Yeah, that's right? a good like, point. Like that's the conclusion. The conclusion for me was like, hey, this seems intuitively and at a gut level, a reasonable decision. But what that shows you is that your intuition in your gut is already constituted, you know, yeah. by those series of marks. Yeah. And riven by context. Like, you can right. see, like, I mean, yeah. like, the, the sort of, like, the intuitionalist sort of, like, I mean, and again, this is, like, oddly part of, of like, analytic philosophy who, you know, is 
you know, eschews generally sort of like the theological, like God right. has planted ideas in our head, but yet they have no problem with going to sort of like what intuitively makes sense within normal discourse yeah. as some sort yeah. of like baseline um, yeah. test for, you know, figuring out where the real thinking happens or where the real problem happens. And that's like... You know, that, that, that's so closely knit to, like, the traditional idealisms. Like, you know, there are first ideas. There are first ideas yeah. that, you know, just at, at that gut level you, you can't deny. And, and the, like, the possibility that those most baseline assumptions are constructed in some right. kind of way and, and that they're constructed differently for different people at different times is, like, I mean, I, th- I think this is going back to what Nate was saying is, like, it's not that hard to intellectually follow that line of argumentation, but it's definitely hard to accept that because the consequences are so destabilizing. If if you feel like you need that that stabilizing basis, right? Well, but another way of saying that, and I, I, I mean, we were t- what we were talking about before is like I feel like there's no real strong sense of history in that kind of thinking. Yeah. Like for this kind of thinking, I think there's a strong sense of history. Like what gives it solidity to me is the fact that it's been iterated for mm-hmm. fucking millennia, mm-hmm. right? Like long pre-existing me, right? Yeah. And so this, so for instance, like this interaction is an accretion of millennia of interactions yeah. of, of all kinds. And I'm, I don't know, I'm super comfortable with that idea, I guess, or maybe I'm too comfortable. And I think for a lot of people, it's like, no, 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 no. This, this is its own thing, and we can rely on that. Where for me, the lesson of like don't trust your gut and don't trust your intuition is to say those that intuition has been built, right? Yeah. It has right. it has been made up over time. Now, again, my lifetime was only has only been fifty two years, right? Like so, but it it's it's not just fifty two years old, and everything yeah. about me is made in the midst of. Again, I, I just yeah. find that that's solid. I don't see that as unstable. Yeah. And, and that's so often the, the critique of some kind of constructivism or some kind of relativism that, you know, like, well, if there aren't sort of like first truths, foundations, stabilities, then anything can be everything at any time. It's like, well, yeah, no, no, it can't. Two out of those three are, are true. Anything can <laughs> right. be everything, but only having gone through the work. And sometimes that work doesn't, it doesn't take very long or very much work. And some of that stuff would take millennia and, right. you know, like enormous amounts of, of labor and, and whatever else, right? It's like, right. but to your point, it's like, look, the earth is not solid. Continents are drifting, right? Look, right? We're flying in space. The sun's not lasting forever. But it has enough inertia and enough stability for me to, for, well, not just me to carve out a pretty stable life, but an entire, like, you know, several millions of years of species to, like, that's evolve right. and die out and mutate, you know, like, it's right. stable enough. Well, that's where the, the comfort and discomfort comes in, because I feel like John and maybe all of us are fairly comfortable with a radicalized notion of context and contingency, and you can confront that and still, like, you know, assemble yourself and your scholarship after that. For people like Searle and Austin, even, like, they're trying to build taxonomies, and that a radicalized notion of context or contingency disrupts and destabilizes those taxonomies to the point where they don't function. So like they're that thinking context in the way that we're trying to do, yeah. like doesn't enable mm-hmm. um, those. But it those can still function. Like you can still, I mean, the, the point of the radical contingency would be there would be no invalid reason for uh, a taxonomy either. Right. That's no. where the next two the next two lectures are on critique. Like what is the yeah. 
basis for critique when you have this kind of what I'm calling like a flat ontology. Right. So, you know, and, and I mean, that to me is actually like the reason that we're, the reason that they're concerned with it is I think that you actually lose the basis for critique as being, mm-hmm. being able to say it's attributable to some fault in the thing. Like mm-hmm. all you can, all you can say is it's not me or yeah. it's not, you know, that's all you can really say. And mm-hmm. I found that like, that's a much more interesting pluralist direction to me is as opposed to saying you're wrong. Yeah. Meaning your thing doesn't cohere with the, the, the state of affairs, right? Like, there, you have to come up with other ways of thinking critique. And it just, it just shows, like, the extent to which some fundamental notion of truth is so fucking powerful. Like, even the po- people who are not invested in a big metaphysical godlike idea of it are still committed, you know, to that, like, I have to be able to tell someone they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Right. Or, or I have to believe that I'm right. It would be the flip side of it, right? Like either one, it doesn't matter which one you choose, but it's like, no, yours is an intervention into the world. Again, based on a whole series, like an accreted series of ways of looking at things that can do lots of, like I, speech act theory can do lots of interesting and u- useful work, regardless of whether or not its premises are like that, he, that, that Austin doesn't follow out the general theory. Right, like though I gotta say, you know, it's such a difference for me between Searle and, and Austin is precisely Austin's willingness to mm-hmm. to follow that 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 line I of agree. thinking. You know, yeah, like, yeah. like what's that that line? I think maybe Derrida um, cites it. The you know, isn't it exhilarating to feel the firm grip of a right. foundation slipping beneath our feet? Like right. you know, as he's trying to build this taxonomy, and you know, the taxonomy itself is showing him holes or contradictions or whatever else. He's got to like, all right, chuck this one over my shoulder and let's try another one. And he you know he has a very sort of iterative approach, and yeah. you know, that's like, I mean, to me, that's incredibly admirable and you know like he goes from he really he he does like very experimentally kind of go from hmm there is this sort of like odd uh, uh, peculiar form of speech that doesn't mean things it you know it does things let's call it the performative now let's figure out how they work oh as, as i sort of like figure out section four sub point three c you know i realize shit all, everything is a performative, even those supposedly right. constitutive utterances like have, you know, a performative dimension to them as the, like that I think or I declare or I posit. Right. And, you know, then suddenly like, he's willing to follow it through and it's like, yeah. it's slow and it's meticulous. And, you, you know, like in some ways you're like, you know, I'm going to speed you up, JL, but right. it's certainly, you know, he, he doesn't seem like he's certainly not stubborn. But why the why the recovery and possibly even privileging of the constative in Austin? Like why why doesn't Austin get to Derrida? Like at least from Derrida's perspective, like well, he, he's still yeah. kind of attributing a failure to Austin. He might it's not say general, that. He, he will not go to the general theory. Right. Like he will he he but can't. I mean that's what, that's Derrida's claim. What this enables him from doing that, you know. Like he didn't write lecture eleven. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think it's that because that's another an interesting thing. I mean, I, in rereading how to do things with words again, he mm-hmm. abandons the performative constitutive by about lecture nine or ten. He's like yeah. those categories just don't work, and that's where illocutionary, perlocutionary, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, and and I don't think it's just that he didn't figure it out. I, I do. I think that Derrida's right in a sense of like. He puts off till later this question of the general theory, but the general theory would have been iterability. And mm-hmm. 
it would have been like everything can go everywhere at any time. That's a constitutive possibility. Now, why doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? Is then the next, like everything doesn't go everywhere all of the time. And so thinking of a logic of convention or context mm-hmm. or whatever, so that's just a different project than the one that he set himself out on. Right, like that's that's. But again, my take. he's totally fine changing that 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 project, right? Like, I mean, you know, I mean, like, look, I th- I think you're right again that there's a certain there's a there's a certain fear, there's a certain like, if anything can go everywhere all the time, you know, at least from this perspective, that's scary. Don't don't follow that through and and see where it takes me. But you know, he's all, and, and I think that shows itself the most, and that again, his sort of like assumption that all right well if i'm going to abandon you know the language of the true false at least at the level of the performative or elocutionary which is going to kind of be it come everything then you know i've got to figure out a different term that that um uh what's the word i'm looking for governs um uh correctness and so we'll go with happy unhappy and right but i mean success or I think Derrida's answer to that is, he, while he, he does all of those things, and that's what's interesting about it, but he's still committed to the horizon of consciousness as being the yeah. baseline. Yeah, like, yeah. it's going to all, you know, yes, it is not the transmission of a pre-existing idea, as it is in most versions of communication, yeah. but it is still about felicity, infelicity. What makes something felicitous? Well, it's because I wanted... Mm-hmm. to accomplish like you know the way that we the way that i just narrated the situation with the teaching award right yeah. like it's like okay i had an intention and attempted to yeah. manage things in a particular direction right like that's mm-hmm. the so in other words there's a wall there's a barrier that he's like look the the sort of the the communicative apparatus can go all wonky but it's always right. sort of subordinated to the tethered to consciousness the, yeah that's which right. is what keeps it from going you know, right. if, if consciousness was right. wonky, then language would be more like would be right. wonkier. Right. That, uh, that's the fear. That's that's where I'm saying yeah. I don't feel like if you say consciousness is non-self-present, I just don't feel like you. I don't feel like you lose anything, yeah. no. right? Like I understand that people feel like you lose everything, yeah. um, but I don't. I that don't used to, that, that was a thought that terrified me as an undergrad because you know because I was always the most pulled by philosophies of the mind philosophies of like the self like the constitution of the consciousness or soul or whatever whether it was plato or descartes or whoever yeah and like that like i mean it was in some ways like a driving force it's like i don't care what it looks like it can be you know different than i would imagine it but i have to be able to have some kind of right. stabilizing sense yeah. i don't even know what stability looks like right now and when i look back on that now I can remember how it felt, but I don't remember why it felt that way. I don't remember her like Yeah. Yeah, I remember know, Yeah, I remember that feeling being a little more daunting or, you know, scary even just a few years ago. Like the notion that you're not self-directed, like or that there's too many contingencies to fully account for the direction of yourself, your intentions, your motivations, etc. But then like you're saying, John, I mean, it's like it's not like that uh, situation in itself is scary, first of all, because as Derrida's arguing, it's just an ontological fact. It's just the case. Right, right. right. So it's like, it's not like you can battle against that. Um, Well, lots of things are scary that are the case, like lions and tigers and death, right? (laughs) Bears, right. right. But it's interesting there because, I mean, in a certain sense, there's a definition of consciousness built in there, which is the anxiety about it's not being in the center. Like what Mm -hmm. consciousness is. Right. 
is an anxiety of its sort of non-control. Because in many ways we're saying, just be more materialist about this and really think of consciousness as a material as a f- material yeah. phenomenon, it's a machine, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and it's like, at least to me, honestly, for me, that idea or that thinking is so fucking liberating. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like, oh, I don't have absolute responsibility. I don't have total control. I don't have total awareness. Like, I can't have any of those things. And so I can be a lot less neurotic. That doesn't mean don't pay attention. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean just like take things as they come. It, it, can, it can just mean you intervene the way that you intervene and things go as they go. Right. Well, that's the other fear, right? Not just the sort of the I'm not in control or the anxiety of not being in the center, but the sort of like, I mean, as another stabilizing mechanism of, you know, the moralization of action that, you know, I, you know, if I'm not stable or self-present, then I can't be guilty right. or, you know, laudable for, you know, my That's my the nature line. Right. And n- neither can anyone else. And then if that happens, right. you then it's all chaos. And it's always interesting that it's like, you know, it can't be the case chaos. because I don't have, yeah, I don't have the capacity to, you know, I will go back to critique to say you're wrong, I'm right, or I'm even, or even I'm I'm wrong and you're right, right? Because there's a yeah. certain like comfort in that. Well, uh, you know, even when it's a bad outcome, at least I know where I'm at in relationship right. to the thing. What's a little strange about this essay is that. Most of the stuff that we're talking about, we're extending the implications. <laughs> I know. No, no. We haven't talked. We haven't even talked about well, the essay. But. Well, but what I'm, but I mean, it's like the es- All of these things are kind of loaded into Derrida's thinking, but they're not explicitly articulated in this essay. He's talking about like the the sort of details of of uh, speech acts and and right, writings, yes. and he's not getting. He's not even really hinting at the ethical implications or or about the anxiety the potential anxiety of a of a metaphysics of presence and being invested in that and i actually think it might have been useful to at least point towards some of that stuff because that's almost necessary to think through some of the consequences that Mm -hmm. he's saying searle refuses to admit or that austin kind of refuses to acknowledge because like a lot of that anxiety regarding the loss of self-presence um that's almost like a structural component of this thing and it, i don't feel like we get a lot of that in sec like it, it's yeah, well, just that's, that's a more existentialist right right but you know, but I'm, I'm saying like even just like a paragraph like right. would have kind of elucidated some of these points that we're talking through it would have right. made at least for me i'm just being selfish here it would yeah, have yeah. made the essay more given it more import for my thinking Right. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, I, I mean, for like, like his point of departure isn't so much like, isn't it fascinating that no one is able to, you know, like uh, contravene or or sort of like think through the the supposed obviousness of all of these assumptions? Like that's not his starting point. It's like, look, everyone thinks this is just so obviously the case. I'm going to demonstrate how it's impossible, and mm-hmm. you know, that, I mean, like, you know, that's an, that's a that's a launch of a what in many ways is a pretty straightforward critique. I mean, I think in many ways a generous critique, but it is a critique. There isn't then the sort of the second um, like move to then say, and why in the world are we all so self-assured of this thing, right? And that would take to the turn toward the existential conversation. Right. I mean, I can imagine, I don't know anything about the composition of this thing, but I can imagine like, at some point, people were like, oh, man, this performativity thing, this is really cool. Like, you should check this out. This is really smart versions of language. And he read it, and he was like, eh, it's not all that, <laughs> right? Like, it's still privileging consciousness. And then he built the whole context argument, 
you know, yeah, right. the, the front end, the front end of the context is like, I'm giving a paper. So, you know, the whole communication stuff was like, Hey, here's how we can reduce the meaning of the word communication at the con the context. There isn't right. a notion of con- like the whole thing seems to me to sort of lead towards what he, he basically, I mean, it is, and it's a critique and that's, yeah, that's the beef I have with this essay is that mm-hmm. I believe uh, very much that one could read Austin quite differently. And one could do the critique move on Austin and then show Austin pushing through that move, right? Yeah. Like, I, I do think that that's the case. So Austin retains a privileging of consciousness, but only if you stop at, like, lecture 10, mm-hmm. right? Like, or, or, or 11, right? Like, I mean, you could... The category of the elocutionary, right. again, he, he, he does remain oddly beholden to a pretty conventional notion of Austin's intention. I mean, he does, yeah. like... Even his response to, to Searle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, that's mm-hmm. to me, that's the point at which, like, I find my, myself, I, I always, every time I read it, I just have this kind of bristling response to those moments where I'm like, he didn't have to go there. He didn't have to do that. Again, whatever. It's not like, so he's not me. That's all I'm yeah. really saying. And, and that's okay. And I've got to say, like, you know, you have to wonder what kind of, you don't have to wonder. It's, it's actually really obvious. Like running this through the, the the framework of a critique allows like allows this to be read and understood and disseminated yeah. and gain traction in ways that what you're what you're suggesting, which I think I agree, would be more interesting. But the number of people that would be able to follow through it, I mean, like this is not exactly an accessible essay, right? No, so he's already, you know, speaking to a pretty small percentage of people, and then to make the move that you're suggesting would would shrink that, I think, even more. I mean, you know, there's a reason why, you know, for every person that knows Deleuze, three people know Derrida. Uh, I mean, right. and and think about Deleuze's, um, crit- like the critiques of Deleuze's historical figures. Is I love those readings, and I can never read, you know, Kant or Hume or, yeah. I mean, Spinoza or any of those others. Like, with, like they've been so thoroughly... Well, penetrated Delu- by delusified, delusified, right? That you know, I can't read. I, I think they're phenomenal, but very few people think that they are sort of like, like, well, that's not Kant. It's like yeah, it is now. Right. Someone, right. you know, like anything can be everything, and Deleuze did the work to make Kant that. Right, mm-hmm. like I, I can't. I, I don't know what it'll be like to live in a world where Kant isn't that anymore. And let, let's not right. underestimate, and this is something I'd give just a passing nod to in, in the lecture, but we wouldn't know Derrida, right? Mm-hmm. Like if the, the function of critique, yeah. right, allowed was, was one of the things that I think allowed him. And it's those moments, the, the moments that I bristle at, there's those moments that allowed him to be like, here's deconstruction, yeah. right? And, and, and sort of produce it as an international phenomenon. Not only that, there are many other things, but nevertheless, that kind of institutional recognition that allows us to have this conversation today, yeah. right, was, was yeah. because he's saying, I am not Searle or Austin or ordinary language philosophy. John, and, and, he is just taking a deep breath and then saying, I'm going to do my quantitative analysis very briefly yeah. and then move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He made he the is. decision. But, but you're, you're right. I mean, he, he is. That's, that's the move that he makes there. Now, again, this is where the critique thing comes in later. Like he has, you know, in, in terms of the beef that he has with Searle, 
again, I'm of two minds because on the one hand, I'm sympathetic having heard similar kinds of things from various people in response to my stuff. Like I get that I understand that you get to a point where you're just like, I'm so fucking tired of this. I'm going to eviscerate it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I totally get that. At the same time, it is premised on this idea that Searle misunderstood me. And so he, he, and it's like, so again, he's going to say, I'm not relying on the self-identity of meaning. There isn't just one me here, but I am going to rely on this notion of the norms, the conventional norms of reading, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that Searle is either not capable of. So there's, you know, an implicit sort of arrogance to it. Again, institutionally that functions really well. That makes Derrida recognizable. It creates all kinds of, you know. And, and that's also why SEC is, is, is circulates more widely and is better known than Limited Ink because Limited I mean, yeah. largely because you know I, you're right he still does a lot of that but he's also so careful to try to circumscribe or not circumscribe circumvent in, you from saying that because he's like yes. who like um, did, who was I misunderstood if so by whom and then you, right. you know like then serial isn't simply serial he becomes you know serial right. Limited Ink right that, that's right. So, you know, like the question, like, on one hand, he's like, you fucking idiot, you misunderstood me. But in every right. single move of saying that, he complicates, wait, what, who misunderstood me, how, what would misunderstand yeah. right. what would be me, right? And he's always so constantly undermining, you know, and talking about I therapy know. right here, like, you know, imagine like, you know, Derrida has that desire to eviscerate, you just didn't understand me at all. And you didn't care to even try. I'm try, going to eviscerate right. you, and then I'm going to turn my desire to eviscerate you and the very mechanisms by which I'm going to eviscerate you into a a line of thinking, and yeah. let it undo itself. Mm-hmm. That's actually I've got a lot of admiration for for that. You know, when yeah. you think about him being that fucking pissed off at a moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a lot of tension though, and and kind of like a even a contradiction at the heart of the project then in that case, because deconstruction in sort of a semi vulgar sense, as we're talking is like a marketing enterprise where he's like, yeah. it's almost just critique it in, in that sense. But deconstruction at its most rigorous is a thorough inhabitation of a text. Mm-hmm. Even if he's still making those cutting gestures, he's not saying that his interlocutors like Rousseau are wrong. Like no, he's he's not. rendering or even them. Here. No, no, he's not. Yeah, and he's he's saying that they're symptomatic of a certain. That's right. Type of thinking, but that that certainly doesn't. It means they're almost too correct. Like Austin is yeah. so right that it makes him problematic. Um, but for, but again, you know. even to say that it's not that's not even as different of a claim as I think that you think that it yeah. is. Because in that case, you're saying you're symptomatic of a way of thinking. <laughs> you're saying that way of thinking is one thing. It's yeah. called humanism. It's called metaphysics, or whatever. Right. And it, it's so even that move is still a kind yeah. of self-identifying move. That again, there are always marks and traces that allow a different way of doing that. Like that's where right. you right. could do the. I mean, I, I have no problem with the critique move that he does on Austin. I just think it would have been a more interesting essay for me if, mm. in addition to that, part three had been. Austin recognizes this and does other things differently later, right? Like, in other words, turn Austin against Austin. Yeah. yeah. Instead of saying Austin doesn't recognize the brilliance That's right. of his, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't, Austin's unable to get to iteration. Mm-hmm. It's like, but no, Austin, in other words, what's the problem is he doesn't consciously recognize, right, iteration. I mean, that's the problem, right? And that's what Derrida will rely consistently on a notion of rigor, 
right? Yeah. It's not rigorous enough. And I'm like, well, what the fuck is rigor other than the horizon of conscious awareness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And, and again, I'm totally, let me also say, I have learned so much from Derrida because of his commitment mm-hmm. to that kind of rigor. And it's constituted me. So you know, the idea of me critiquing it is itself kind of ridiculous. But it, I do have those moments. Every time I read this, I have these moments of like, oh. And this is why we need cranky John swag for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Even Derrida gets it. Yeah. Deleuze, Hegel, obviously, Heidegger. And, and yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, there needs to, yeah there's cranky it's John, really... merch. Yeah. But the, again, this is a really complicated problematic because it's yeah. like, how do you make yeah. it? I mean, maybe the, the question is like, how do you not make an intervention or like, how do you make an yeah. intervention that doesn't negate in Becoming any, indiscernible, like, right? right? Becoming right. indistinguishable and to lose. Like, yeah. Right. Well, so I, I had a thought along those lines that just, you know, thinking about you, you were talking about like how he uses critique to, in many ways, undo critique, right? So, I mean, like in one way you could read that as like using the master's tools, but in this case, he's like showing how the master's tools don't even do what the master thinks that they do. And then, right. you know, like when you're talking about how it's like it, for you, it'd be more interesting if he didn't make those moves or if he brought them full circle a little bit. I, right. Is he just making a joke out of critique? Yeah, I mean, is he mobilizing okay. critique to to make fun of? I mean, to well, not make fun of critique, but to bring a certain kind of. If you follow through on his on his argument, you know, on on, on if you follow his, his line of thinking, then what he is his so called critique can't be a critique, and he had to have known it all the way. You know, but they, but uh, okay, yeah, no, he was I doing to Derrida do what you Derrida, were hoping Derrida saying, was yeah, doing right. to doing Austin. to Austin, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that would be a next kind of move. I, I also do think that there's a reason for thinking that those moves serially, like what we were talking about at the very beginning of like, yeah. you know, the first the first move is saying difference is an origin, and then the next move is saying the nature of difference means that it can't function as an origin. Like it problematizes the whole function of an origin. And I think that the, the serial making of those points, and I, I, I actually take that to be a pretty Derridian point, right? Like, you, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the importance of that seriality, like to hook into one point in order to then unhook that point, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and mm-hmm. whereas I, I feel like what I get from Deleuze is just like, there are no origins. Yeah you know um and and that resonates a lot more so what you have then is just interventions and cuttings right like uh with without recourse to even a notion of convention as your justification or even a notion of what are you critiquing like is there a Searle is there an Mm -hmm. Austin um certainly not one right like we I mean certainly not right but like even a particular, I mean, that it's easy to say that at the level of the subject, but is there even a line? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, well, I do, mean because it really then forces you just to think, you know, all right, none of this stuff pre exists the configuration, right? The like, it is the performance right. of the critique that That's produces right. an Austin or a serial to be critiqued. And the only uh, the question is, what kind of what version of Cyril or Austin does it? That's right. That's that's where I love. I mean, the the refrain for me of these three lectures uh, that I quoted, and I, uh, this is paraphrasing it, but it's like the theory of speech acts is made up of speech acts. Yeah. Right. Like that's the thing that I feel like, you mm. know, Cyril doesn't think through. 
And most people don't, right? right? Like that you're cutting even as you're describing what cutting is. Yeah. Know? Right. Well, I mean, just think about how much of the academy or just like the Western tradition of, of knowledge production writ large is, is that like the method, the tool, the observation has to be distanced from the object of study. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it gets really That's messy right. when the object of study becomes the method or the tool it has or to be. the, the like knowing. It has to be. Right. right. And, and, you know, it's like every time, you know, even when I want to examine language or examine consciousness or examine myself, you know, there's always the performative move of distancing, distancing the examining version of myself from the examined from the, version of myself. Right. And it, you want to be able to believe the examining part of me isn't caught up in this chain of relationships, but it always... Right always is and that's really and and it doesn't have to become the object of study to be caught up in those relationships Um, i guess that's an interesting way of saying it for me because i guess i feel like the anxiety that one feels at that idea is is the is is what like the feeling that you can't separate yourself right the mm -hmm. feeling that you are at at stake right and the, 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 the desire that fuels it that fuels what produces that anxiety is like there's got to be a point like a subject removed from its object right there's mm-hmm. just got to be like that that sort of mm-hmm. necessity of separating something out in order to look at it or to comment on it at in some way and if they're both moving simultaneously it's a feeling like there's what there's no point that i can rely on its stability and so when all yeah. of the points are moving at the same time then you have a solar system, right? Like yeah, yeah, you have actual right. actual life, but so that's the okay. So that's interesting. Like consciousness is anti-life, right? Yeah. Like it's a it's an attempt to repudiate. That would make perpet- total sense within Nietzsche's economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Deleuze. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. By the way, it just occurred to me we have talked about this at this like. This is not going to make any sense to anyone. Like this, uh-huh. this really might be the throwout uh, 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 podcast because I just don't think this is going to make any sense to anybody. We've said that <laughs> this is so, this is interesting to me, very interesting because we, we've I said agree. that I think about every Derrida episode. Yeah, you know, is with true, and, and you know, like one of the I think it was maybe the Plato's Pharmacy one is like how do you. You know, we started with Hegel, which we all had a certain, was all alien to us to a certain degree. And like, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've done, Heidegger was certainly alien to to us to a certain degree. And, you know, we focus on the text more then. But every single Derrida one, it's like there's a repulsor beam that prevents us from going to the text and thinking through it more, sort of like. Why is that? That's interesting. I think you're right. Yeah. And every single Derrida one, it's so like. It's been a launching point for really great idiosyncratic conversation. I totally agree. But it seems but to be an, but we don't a, a talk symptom about of intimacy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We don't talk about the argument or the essay yeah. hardly at all. Right. Like it's like we're like, OK, we presume that we all kind of understand the basic moves here. And now we're like, what are the implications of these moves yeah. and how do we follow? How do we follow that somewhere else? I just think for listen, you know, for a listener to this, it's just not going to make any sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's a real question. Like, how do we proceed talking and thinking about and especially exposing others to the thinkers that we're the most intimately connected with? Because, you know, what we could do is sort of like, I, we're going to detail it out and explain it to you. But I have a feeling that would feel more um, sterile than it would have with Hegel or anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm also like... 
I'm not sure any of our conversations have made any sense. It, like, I, I, you know, <laughs> like to, to a lay audience, I mean, what are you going to expect from... You have to have theory people listening to this. We have little sections where we're just shooting the shit. Anybody right. could listen to that. But once you right. get into the weeds with, with any of these thinkers, there's a select few <laughs> who are going to be able to key in and be like, oh, yeah, like, and be able to follow our conversation. So I don't... I don't think but I just these... think but in some of our episodes that select few has been larger and in other ones they've been smaller and I, I, I kind of agree with the Derrida ones it might be an audience of three and we're all here <laughs> like I, right, I don't right, right. Yeah. on one level that's true but on another level like what we're talking about I mean really what we're talking about is the sort of everything being at play simultaneously like every yeah. concept everything every word yeah. every you know and that to me actually seems like a totally commonplace sort of problem, even if it's yeah. not theorized as such. Mm -hmm. right. Meaning that that's something that anyone who traffics at all in theory is like experiences, yeah. right? Like that sort of, we're talking mm -hmm. about as anxiety or whatever else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. to me, that that's the point at which I feel like Derrida, Derrida's the one who shows you the extent to which everything is at play. Like the things that you thought, I mean, that's where I, I feel like the displacing of the grounds of logic displacing not eradication yeah. not erasure yeah. but the displacing in other words showing you the movement through which you know the law of non uh, contradiction or whatever like mm -hmm. is is suspended right that that like holding up this placard and being like hey there really is a solar system and it's not a picture of you know a bunch of different planets it's actually all orbiting all of the time and that that's what to live is right you know right yeah, I mean, and I don't know why I want to phrase it this way, but, like, could you, like, right, I mean, deconstruction is usually posed as, like, a critique of binaries or uh, a critique of absolutes. But, I mean, could you say, this seems like such an undergrad comment, but could you say <laughs> that context for Derrida in this sort of radicalized sense, maybe you could call it contingency, that's, like, the one absolute, like, where you can't escape context or, or contingency in any final way. You can't make that cut between subject and object. So if Derrida were to entertain an absolute, it would have to be context. Well, I would you, say it this way. You can make any cut, yeah. right? Like, you, you know, you, you can make the subject-object cut. It's just that it's a cut, Yeah. right? It's, it's an intervention. It is an action. So, you know, you, you can... There are plenty of absolutes. It's not just right? that they logic are, is displaced, it's, it's multiplied as well, and we're making the subject-object cut one cut of, of many. Right, but wouldn't the, su the subject-object would be a provisional cut, wouldn't it be, for Derrida? Everything is a provisional Everything would be provisional. Everything, well, is, everything provisional is provisional and absolute? <laughs> yes, mean, no, that's right. Yeah. Like, in, in that sense, yeah. like, or I would say it this way. What the absolute is, is a particular style of provisional cut. Yeah. So yeah. one can cut provisionally and call it provisional, and one can cut provisionally and call it absolute, right? right? Which we, by the way, we've had this conversation over and over again, because what that means from a Derridian, Deleuzian perspective is very different than what it means from a Hegelian perspective, because, yeah, yeah. you know, like, imagining yeah. the flat playing of imminence, you know, Deleuze would say, like, yeah, people cut as if there are absolutes all the time, and those cuttings have very particular styles, very particular ramifications, um, but they never 
they, they they're never able to um, transcend the you know the, right. the, the, the the ontological plane, right? They, they don't do what they think they're doing, but you know what? Basically, nothing does. So that doesn't make them any better or worse than anything else. Right. I, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of I mean, I'm trying to think about how to make it more applicable outside of the sort of like the the length the um, uh, discourse on on speech act theory, and just think about it in terms of law writ generally like like not even you know the like in at the realm of like the natural law um and uh, the impulse you know again i think of it very like a um, uh an impulse very much so rooted in, in anxiety people say all right well if god's not running the show there are laws that transcend physical interactions and you know we can use science to sort of discover them and enumerate them and and, and figure out the qualities of them um, and so that means that any interaction between any two physical bodies, right, is governed by a transcendent law that says these are the things that you can do, these are the things that you cannot do. Um, and like what it would be to flatten law, which we just think is essentially, constitutively transcendent. What would, like, law changes in a pretty fundamental way when we think about it as imminent to everything Kafka. else, right? Yes. Kafka's um, before the law. Yeah, right. One's so, standing face-to-face -face with the doorkeeper. Yeah. One just imagines that there's a storyline of future doorkeepers. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And by, so, like... I mean, so there are two things operative here. One for all of the things supposedly governed by law and then for law itself that, you know, on the one hand, um, there is no transcendent law. There are only the particular effects of forces working on each other, right? Um, and then two, one of those forces moves in a style that we call law. Yeah. And that, well, that is... Moves in a style that projects, retroactively projects a sense of transcendence. Yeah, so, a sense of so transcendence. Tra right, but yeah. the, the important point would be transcendence doesn't pre-exist. Yeah. Transcendence is retroactively posited as pre-exist. Again, Lacan on the real, right? Like, I mean, we've got many Build a sense of transcendence on the, yeah, on, on the flat plane. Right, right. So, yes, I mean, it's it's... So yeah, the that sense of law is the same as saying speech act theory is a series of speech acts. Yeah. You know, that you are performatively constituting or cutting or illocutionarily cutting um even the illocutionary, right? Yeah. Like and 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 that notion, I mean it's like it's it's a question of regularities. It's like look, gravity seems to be a fucking concept that plays out in in a vast majority of cases except black holes and event horizons yeah. right like i mean yeah. you know so there's always these exceptions and you say mm -hmm. well it's a law but it's a law like every law has exceptions in in that sense and you say for these types of bodies these things seem to regularly work this way in conjunction with one another but that's just like a matter of frequencies like yeah you know when i tune my radio into the right station then i get that broadcast but yeah, i get outside right. of those parameters and it's something else and you know like i mean this there is such like a, a a privileging of you know the a human point of origin because you think well you know when things get really really big then the laws of gravity change when things get really really fast they change when they get really really slow they change when they get really really small they change and then you realize wait a second really really big compared to what really really small compared right, right. to what us right because you have to realize there's an 
infinite, you know, like scope yeah. of bigger from that, that, that takes what we take as really, really big as a starting point. And then there's an infinite right. scope of really like smaller from that takes what we take as really, really small as a so starting point. You just started point. talking about space and you freaked me out. I Have know, we gone through know, my aversion to space? I know. <laughs> but it is, this, it is the problem. It is the same anxiety question that we're talking about, yeah. right? Like it's, yeah, yeah I, I can't think about that. I can only but think you, about you, it as a model, as a static yeah. model. But we think about like our experience as an infinite array, right? Like we're, we're in the middle and then there's infinite in one direction and there's infinite in another direction. And then if you're going to take infinity seriously, you have to realize that that scope, that band of infinity <coughs> is infinitesimally small compared to like forget about there are exceptions to gravity the vast majority of probably existence is an exception to what we take to be the norm of gravity yeah well thanks now i feel a lot better yeah. <laughs> but that, that's why that's kind of also why i wanted to suggest that like the aleatory has to be some sort of god term in derrida like not in not in the sense that Derrida doesn't know that he's using that way. This is not a critique of Derrida, but like context, contingency, the aleatory, that has to function in the place of the the mover, the grand mover. But it would have everything. to be the, the aleatory. There would have have no transcendent function whatsoever. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, that's like that's, that's the, where right. Difference is the word for that. Yeah. Right? Like the non self identity, yeah. non self presence. Right. Of everything. Which yeah. would mean that like, non-self-presence but doesn't it's, so it's, cover but it's, anything. Right. It's, it's very important that that's not a God term. Like, he very explicitly explains why that isn't the transcendent Well, I, but I mean not not in that explicitly trans... I mean, it's you can see how it's still fun... If that's the grounding, ungrounding principle... But it's not the ground. It's not, not a ground. That's ungrounding. That's, the that's why I said part. ungrounding. <laughs> <laughs> but Listen. that is... You are... To me, what you're doing there is Hegelian. Which is like, hey, I want to map this into the oppositional framework because it's the only way that we have to understand. And you're right. I mean, you're right about it. Well, that. and Derrida, even in the Difference essay, he acknowledges that. He's like, Listen, like... There's only so many ways you can articulate this non-concept, and a lot of them are going to kind of slip into what looks negative like a theology. negative theology, you know. Right. And he, so That's he's the thing about negative theology, but so it's, it can appropriate, but anything. it's not. No, it's, it's not, not a negative theology for. But him. I mean, it kind of it like there's no, a way. No, not kind of is. <laughs> but it, it's it's not. It doesn't escape metaphysics, right? I mean, like we no like. You know, it doesn't. You're right. It doesn't escape metaphysics, but it's not theological in that. Like, I mean, at least for him, he, you know, he's, I think he's very much at pains to say there isn't a god. Difference is not the subtle god term that functions a lot like it. I mean, that's the negative theological. The issue there is that there is no super essentiality called God. Right. 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 But like, so, like, what would it be to to flatten out metaphysics as well? Because you know, like, the question of escaping metaphysics has a very contextualizing sort of operation on it. Like, as if there is a domain called metaphysics that's inescapable right. for us, and there we could imagine an outside to us to it that I don't know is only approachable by the overman or absolute spirit or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Heidegger's hut in the black forest those are the only three things that could escape right. it but you know to imagine like like rethink 
Derrida's claims about the unavoidability of metaphysics and now not don't think of them as a terrain that have a boundaries but think about them as like the network of associations that like look in order to be able to say to to say anything it's attached to it's not being governed by it's not within the terrain of it is attached to a whole bunch of other stuff contingently some some of them very strongly so those threads are very like very strong and robust some of them weaker some of them faster some of them slower but it's about an attachment that would give the mirage of a terrain when you think about them as a whole but it's not it's not in a container mm -hmm. right so like you know being is not in a container it is just a word that has attachments to other words that in their sort of like uh, in this, the structure of their attachments have like developed different senses, different yeah. consequences, different forces. Right. Yeah. And I mean, context and difference, that's what even enables the illusion of the container in the first place, you know, yeah. like of metaphysics or otherwise. Yeah, that's right. Like, that's, that's right. what I, I don't know. I, I just, I really love that it's just a suggestion on the first or second page because it reminded me of stuff you've said in class, John, and that, you know, that we just don't have an adequate notion of context. But it's yeah. like when you start confronting that question, it's like, well, that yeah. you can't have an adequate notion of context because context is what both provides the condition of possibility for con conceptuality and unravels and erodes conceptuality from within. So it's like... Totally. What are you going to, there's no like, all right, we got the concept of context down and now we get to move <laughs> right. forward, you know. That's well, right. this is why like I, you I one can never, you can't avoid making contexts and you can never defend your context compared to someone else's or one context against another one, right? That, that right. like, you can never, I mean, I'm thinking actually of your Topoi chapter, John, is that like, you know, the, like the Topoi or a context that like con contexts never exist at mm -hmm. all. They are only ever, they're only ever made. They're only ever performed and enacted. And at most, you know, like you get the the sense of a context having been made as sort of like a secondary after effect of the, of of the the, the of the, the cutting itself of the decision uh, decision of sort of separating right. out one thing from another. Right. right. That's where, didn't we, we talked about this last time, because to me, when, when I taught Signature Context, it was right after the Will Smith, Chris Rock slapping yeah. thing. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. And all of those conversations that were just various attempts to contextualize the thing. Um, but, I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, we're always contextualizing without necessarily thinking that we're contextualizing. We're, we think mm -hmm. we're talking about the text, which mm -hmm. is, uh, we're talking about Will Smith and Chris Rock. But even doing that, I've already, right, like, anything that you're going to end up saying that you've already contextualize it uh in order to create anything to talk about much less a way of talking about it and so we're, we're constantly uh, doing those things i mean to me i guess i just have a more anthropocentric view of of the thing which is that i do actually think that there are just other ways of thinking like mm -hmm. i i have no imaginable way of thinking what they are but for example like I mean, even s simple things, like if we lived in a different solar system, the idea mm -hmm. of enlightenment would be ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. um, that, that's 
entirely because of the solar system that we live in and the sun yeah. and what yeah. it does for our species. Like if we yeah. could see infrared, enlightenment wouldn't be, you know. So I, I believe there's a whole different order of conceptuality that's imaginable, not to humans, yeah. right? Like, uh, uh, and, and so that's where, for me, the, the, the constant driving refrain is from Nietzsche, which is to give birth to the overman.